you don't have a Bible with you, then put your hand up, and we have guys in the back that will bring them to you for $5. They'll give you one. No, I'm just kidding. Not for $5. They'll just give you one. If you don't own a Bible, then keep it. We're not going to tackle you at the door and ask you to give it back. If you need a Bible, keep it. But turn in your Bibles, those of you that have them and are receiving them, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And let's just for kicks go to a second place this morning. I haven't done that in a while. So let us go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as well. So there's two spots. If you're not real handy at finding your way through your Bible, then look in the table of contents. You can find those markers there. If the person next to you seems to know what they're doing, ask them, say, hey, where are those things? Uh, Then they'll help you out. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 are the two places that we'll be looking at this morning. While you're getting your page or pages marked, I'm going to lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, are so thankful that Jesus said that on this rock, He will build His church on, on the rock of the testimony that He is Lord and Savior. On that rock, the church is built. Because, Father, we know that the gates of hell will not prevail. That death cannot hold the church. And, Father, we also know that Satan is very, very busy. In and around uh, the county, in the fellowship, in the churches, Lord. Working as leaven from the inside working as criticism from the outside, working through people's flesh, people's selfishness. Father, us giving him the tools to do his destructive work. And Father, I pray that you would keep us from the evil one. I pray that you would knit us together in love, that we would have a bond of encouragement and a bond of love between us, Lord, that Satan would not be able to get a foothold through unforgiveness. Father, I pray that we would take heed to your word every day of our lives. Give us the discernment to see when we're not obeying. When we're trying to do it our own way, Lord, we just mess everything up. And then you come along and when we let you, you fix it up. You take what's been broken and you bind it up. You take those that have been captive and you set them free. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. So, Father, we just give you our hearts again. We just lay our our heart on the altar and ask you, Lord, to change it, to encourage it, Lord, to stitch it up where it's been torn and to just keep giving us that new life that you promised, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. So we have been in 1 Timothy chapter, uh, well, we've been in the whole book of 1 Timothy, and today will be our last week in 1 Timothy. So I thought it might be useful to do a, a quick review. And as I was thinking about it this morning, um, came up with a little bit of a, uh, I, I guess, an outline 
So Paul has sent this young man, this young pastor, Timothy, to help fix up this broken church in Ephesus. And, and really, you know, churches, can, as I prayed, you know, Satan is busy trying to divide and conquer, trying to get people set against each other, trying to work uh, through us letting him through unforgivenesses and, and difficulties and discouragements and things like that. And, and, and then there's also things on the inside, uh, sh- uh, uh, wolves among the sheep. We know that, right? So Paul sends Timothy to try to get a grip on this church. My son is, is learning how to, well, actually, he's got his driver's license, so, but he's still learning how to drive. He's only been driving a couple of, maybe a year. And so he's still learning how to drive. And so when we get in the car, the, the last thing I would want to tell him is, okay, Jacob, just let go of the steering wheel. Just hit the gas and let go of the steering wheel. Would that be good advice? That'd be terrible advice. Why? What's going to happen to the car if it's not being steered? It's going to veer off course eventually, right? It'll start small, but then eventually it's going to be way off course and we'll end up in a ditch. And so in a sense, I think Paul is telling Timothy to get a grip on the church. The church that he's writing to, uh, the church that we're talking about here, uh, which represents all churches everywhere, had just gotten off track because no one was steering it. And those that were trying to steer it were not doing a good job of it. They were not using godly principles. So the first thing in chapter 1 we learn, Paul tells Timothy to get a grip on the pulpit. Hey, tell some people not to teach things that don't line up with Jesus. You've got to teach healthy doctrine. And why is teaching so important, folks? Because what you are taught dictates the way you'll live if you believe it. When I started shoeing horses, I found the best horseshoer I could find who had the best reputation. And I said, that's who I want to learn from. Because I know he's doing a good job. And I know that when a teacher or when a student is fully discipled, he'll become like his teacher. In your Christian life, find people as you're growing. Find people that you say, that's the kind of life I want. What is it that you do? What is it that you read? How is it that you function as a Christian family? Show me. Teach me. I want to learn because that's the kind of life I want to have. So what you're teaching what you're, or what's being taught and what you're learning, if you follow it, will dictate the kind of life that you live. So the first thing that Paul does when he goes, I mean that Timothy does when he goes to this church is Paul tells him, get a grip on the pulpit because what's being taught in that church is not leading to a healthy church. Those things are not in line with, with Jesus Christ's words. Those things are not in line with godly principles. And Timothy, you've got to command some that they teach no other doctrine, no other kinds of instructions. That was chapter 1, getting a grip on the pulpit. Chapter 2, getting a grip on prayer. First of all, just encouraging them to pray. Second of all, encouraging them that when they come together to pray, prayer is not about arguing over things or drawing attention to yourself. Sometimes when we pray, it can be about what people think of how we prayed. We pray so that because uh, other people are listening and we try to impress them with our prayers or we're too embarrassed at all to pray. And so Paul helps them to get a grip on prayer. Chapter 3, Paul helps the, the church to get a grip on positions, positions in the church. And we know that sometimes people fight over authority and power in the church. Does that usually lead to a healthy church when people are fighting for power? No. So... Paul tells Timothy, hey, Timothy, get a grip on positions, not just anyone who wants to lead, 
is qualified to lead. There are certain characteristics that must be present in the life of a leader because a leader sets the tone for the whole church and is sort of the example for the whole church. An example of confessing when you're wrong. An example of attempting to live out the truths of the Word of God. And and you can read that more about that in in chapter 3. Get a grip on the positions. Chapter 4, Paul had to get a grip on his protege, Timothy himself. Timothy was a timid young guy. He was in a church with older, more established men and women that were sort of running over him. And he was really being challenged just to quit, to lay it, you know, to forget it. I got something. I, I'll go do, I'll go, you know, collect bottle cans or bottles and cans on the street and take them for recycling rather than to, to do this, be a pastor thing. This is hard. Now just let me something, do something simple, something easy. And, and Paul has to encourage him to stay with it, to stick it out, um, to not uh, give up. So he gives some encouragement to his protege, getting a grip on him. Uh, chapter 5, getting a grip on provisions for people. Financial care in the church for widows and the elders. Taking care, and, and what we want to do as a church is to take care of those who need to be cared for. That was chapter 5. And finally, 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 chapter 6, getting a grip on prosperity, getting a grip on prosperity, uh, dealing with money and wealth and how those things can be uh, abused, uh, how the love of money can cause all sorts of problems in the church and in our world. Isn't that true? And he talks about contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so we pick up there in chapter 6. We'll start back at verse 11 and get a running start. And, uh, and look more today at uh, the issue of money, which the Word of God has a lot to say about money, doesn't it? God has a lot to say because money is a real big issue in our world. Matter of fact, I pulled out some information here. More people fantasize about money than physical intimacy with their spouse. Number two, if we could have any luxury in the world and money didn't matter, more of us would choose to spend money on a butler and a maid than anything else. Number three, 90% of Americans who own pets buy them Christmas gifts. Some of you are saying, amen. Four, money is the leading cause of disagreements in marriages. Some have said money is the leading cause of divorce as well. 65% of Americans would live on a deserted island all by themselves for an entire year for a million dollars. That makes for some good discussion on the way home. Would you do it? I don't know. Would you do it? For $10 million, most of us would do almost anything, including abandoning our family and friends and our church. A very high percentage of us would, for that same amount of money, change our race or sex. And one in every 14 would even murder someone for $10 bucks. What's really strange about this is that the statistics remain the same whether it's $10 million all the way down to $3 million. For $3 million bucks, most of us would do the same things uh, we would do for $10 million. But guess what? Few of us would do these things for a measly $2 million. 92% of us would rather be rich than find the love of our lives. And here's a weighty one. Money, or the lack thereof, is the biggest stress inducer in the lives of Americans. We worry more about money than our marriages, our health, 
or even who's going to win the Super Bowl. So money is a huge deal. Billy Graham said, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help him straighten out almost every other area of his life. Another person said, the clearest indication of a person's true priorities are a person's calendar and his checkbook. Your calendar and your checkbook will tell the true story of what you treasure and what you prioritize in your life. And so that's not a condemnation. That's just to say, hey, this is the reality. So hopefully what we're going to study today, what we're going to look at straight from the mouth mouth of God Almighty will help you to deal with some of these things. How do I feel? You know, as you're asking yourself, well, what is my attitude toward money? Do I love money? Am, Am I concerned more with getting rich or having more than I, am, than I am with anything else. So this is what we're going to address as we go down. Uh, verse 11, we start there. Uh, this was Paul's antidote for Timothy to the love of money and the desire for riches and wealth. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things. And instead of pursuing money and wealth, instead pursue righteousness. Pursue Godliness And godliness is used more in 1 Timothy than anywhere else in, in the Bible. Got, this is continually coming up. Godlikeness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue patience. And pursue gentleness. These are the things that you get to pursue if you take that energy of pursuing money and turn that into pursuing righteousness and godliness and faith and love then you'll really be getting somewhere. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. To which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. He says, verse 13, I urge you, Timothy, in the sight of God, who gives life to all things. That's where life comes from. Life comes from God interesting this is something that i speak about often just a a little side note here uh, for those of you that are interested in evolution creation and these this uh, dynamic that is talked about there is a uh, there's a, a law a scientific law that says that life only comes from life you never get life in a test tube they've tried it never been able to produce it even though you might have the the materials the building blocks of organic organisms of of the organisms of living things the things we're made of that doesn't mean that they're alive the only place you have to have life to get life you never see it any other way in in the world ever so to believe in evolution or to believe that in the beginning there was pre-mortal slime and that slime kind of electricity or lightning struck and all of a sudden life happened If you choose to believe that, recognize that you believe a bigger miracle than that in the beginning God created. Because you believe that at one time in history, all of the laws of nature and science were suspended so that life could be produced from non-life. So just know that. Just understand that. Where does life come from? Life always has to come from life. Who's the originator of all life? Where does all life come from? Who is the fountain of life? God Almighty. He took the, the... Elements of the earth, the dirt. He put them together and he, and he built Adam. And then what did he do? He breathed 
life into him. So, but if you like to believe the other thing, then you can watch Frankenstein, because that's what Frankenstein tried to do. Put all these dead parts together, struck by lightning. Ah, oh, it is alive, you know, because... But it's God who gives life to all things. And you've got to know where you came from, because if you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you're going. They're connected. God who gives life to all things. Money doesn't give life to things, does it? That's, there's a lot of things money can do. But there's a lot of things it can't do. If you think that money is going to give you life, an abundant life, boy, are you mistaken. Somebody say amen. Because that's true, isn't it? Life comes from God. From a good shepherd. So you confess these things, Timothy. In the sight, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now what does that mean? When Jesus Christ was before Pontius Pilate, who was uh, the governing that area at the time of his crucifixion, he asked Jesus, you know, are, are you a king? This is John 18 is where you can read this. And basically, Jesus said, look, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my people, my, my disciples would fight. We, we'd argue about this. We, we'd, we'd go to it to, for leadership and power of, of this world earthly kingdom. But Jesus said, you know what? My kingdom's not of this earth, not of this world. I got a kingdom that transcends this world. And then he also continued to tell Pontius Pilate that he came to bear witness to the truth. And so as Paul is trying to encourage Timothy not to get caught up uh, being jealous of those who have a lot of wealth or being influenced by those who are promoting their wealth and using it for power, instead of that, He says, Timothy, remember the choice you made. And I'm going to ask this group and and remind this group, those of us that are baptized believers in Jesus Christ, that you made a choice. You made a choice for a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly one. You made a choice for a dwelling place whose foundations are not based in this world. You made a choice for an eternal kingdom, an eternal life. And that's what Paul's reminding Timothy. Timothy, nobody forced you to make that choice. If you want to go after money and you think earning five million bucks is going to make you happy, then that's your choice. And it's the choice that every one of us has to make. If money matters to you, if money is that important, then go for it. But you can't serve God and money. So the, the choice level before all of us today in our hearts is choose this day whom you will serve. If you're going to serve God, then serve him. Love people, care about people, care about him, worship him. But if you're going to run after money, then do that. But you can't do both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Do we, are, are we, is that clear? We understand? That's, Jesus said you can't serve God and money. That's not just me. So he's calling Jesus as a witness. Jesus did this. That he said, hey, I'm about a different kingdom and I'm about truth. Timothy, is that what you're about? If that's what you said you're about, then let's get on with it. Let's do it. Let's fight that good fight. Let's lay hold on eternal things, not just on earthly things. As we said, whatever we get here stays where? Here. Naked we came. And how do we leave? Roughly speaking. We dress it all up now, but that's another story. So, Timothy, I urge you, before God, before Christ Jesus, 
that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. See, he says, Timothy, you, you, gotta, you can't just do this. You've you got to be in for the long haul, folks. You've got to be in and determined to run the whole race. Who gets the crown? Not the person who gives up in the middle of the race. I know there's some folks in our church that run marathons, and, I, and I've done some athletic competition. And if you do any endurance running, then there's a time in the middle where you hit that thing called the wall, right? Where you'd rather be anywhere else but running. You'd rather be, you know, you're picturing the couch and potato chips and television and movies and big glass of ice water. and You got all these things that start running through your mind and you're tempted to quit, to give up. And, and many do. And if you do, if you choose to quit and give up before the finish, then you don't get the crown. You never get to have that satisfaction of having finished the race. And Paul writes that to Timothy in his next letter. Timothy I have run my race and I have finished the course. The crown goes to those who endure. And so he's saying, Timothy, keep with this. Keep this all the way until when? Until Christ comes. And that's when you'll get your reward. All those things you, you felt like you had to give up, all those things that other people had and, or whatever. And the, for, compared, Look, God puts gold. He hides it in the ground in rocks and watches mankind hunt and dig and search and try to get it. And then you get to heaven and you find out he uses it as pavement in heaven. The streets are paved with the stuff. And then and, and a pearl, you know, that's, that's an oyster's response to irritation, a pearl. Isn't that a great thing? Isn't, isn't that be wonderful? Is that what, what's our response to irritation, a pearl? This beautiful, rich thing. But in heaven, the gates are made of the stuff. All that stuff we thought mattered, we're going to get to heaven and go, oh, all the stuff I tried to save and get, all I had to do was wait till I got here and I'd have it all. And more than I ever could have had on earth. And then it won't even matter because we'll be in Jesus' presence. We'll be like, who cares about pearly gates? I'm with my Lord. And look how beautiful he is. So, you know, Timothy, keep these things in perspective. Calvary Chapel Fluvanna, keep these things in perspective. Look, we have to use stuff. I mean, we have to buy clothes and we have to have a vehicle to get around. And we don't even have to have a vehicle. You know, sometimes a bicycle works or you can walk. And anyway, there's, but we, we live in this world and so we use the stuff of the world. But be careful that the stuff of the world isn't using you. And don't live for that stuff is all Paul is trying to tell and encourage Timothy. So he's going he's gonna to come, uh, his second coming. He's going to manifest it in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, that just means uh, authority or the power to rule. He's the only one that has the power to rule. We say the golden rule is that he who has the gold has the power to rule. The Bible says no. The only one that has, has the power to really truly rule is who? Jesus. I mean, check out Daniel. Check out the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful world rulers that ever lived surpassed only by men like alexander the great nebuchadnezzar he looks at babylon as the city built and it's got the hanging gardens and all kinds of wealth and just tremendous tremendous amount of wealth in babylon and he's just he's just on his balcony checking out his kingdom going ah smelling the babylonian air and says look at this kingdom i've built for myself and then god says oh you think so do you and god steps in 
and says, well, Nebuchadnezzar, let me, let me tell you something. He, this is Nebuchadnezzar's words. He says, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Ooh, that makes you kind of, whoa, you know something's coming after that, right? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. See, he's powerless to stop that. All of his money, all of his wealth, powerless to keep God from acting. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he chooses. What a lesson. So our world leaders have this perception that they're powerful. You might even, wherever you are, in your family, in your workplace, you might have a perception, maybe if you're wealthy, you have a perception that you're powerful. But look at what Paul tells Timothy next. He alone is is, uh, able to rule, has power to rule. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. That's the Lord. Now money gives a sense of immortality, doesn't it? Money gives a sense of power. Money can give a sense of all these things. And people that have money oftentimes like to buy things that tell others that they have power. You know, I buy a power suit. I got a power car. I got power windows. I don't have power windows in my car. So uh, I got power stuff, you know. I play power ball and whatever. I play with power rangers, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) But look, it's an illusion. Power nap. I like that one. Power nap. That's because you're out spending all your power money. Uh, not you, you, but, uh, but this is the point when, when Jesus was speaking about a man who had got so much, he had to build bigger barns. Oh, look at all that I've got. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm tearing my barn, build bigger for more of my stuff. And Jesus said, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And, and so money what would, can, can you buy immortality for yourself? Can you buy heaven for yourself? Can you buy salvation? No. Only the precious, listen, only the precious blood of Jesus Christ can secure your salvation. And you cannot buy that. You know, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, listen, you who have no money, the Bible says come, buy and drink and eat and enjoy with no money, because Jesus paid it all. And it's true. And that, that way, the, then the invitation is open, whether you're of a high social class, low social class, whether you're a millionaire, or you're like the widow who had two mites, or you got nothing, it's open to you. So just Paul worshiping. Now, it, it almost like he could end there, but he doesn't. He goes on to uh, verse 17, and he says, Now command... Those who are rich in this present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Where do all things come from? God. If you're wealthy, 
Don't get haughty. Don't get arrogant as if you accomplished that for yourself. Only by the grace of God. I've said this before. The, the greatest contributing factor, if you're wealthy, and, and by the way, we are. We own and have uh, the largest portion of the world's wealth. I mean, we make more than 99% of the rest of the people in the world. Even the poor of, poorest of us in this room have more than most of the world. And so when we talk about command those who are rich, don't say, that's not me. Uh-uh. If you drove here and you ate breakfast this morning and you're planning on what you're going to have for lunch and maybe you've already sorted out dinner for tonight, then you are among the wealthiest in the world. So you can't write this off. But command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty uh, as if you did it yourself. It's a blessing. from. So if you're rich, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Uncertain riches. I did a little website search. Do you know that the greatest word that's used in conjunction with economics and finances right now in our day and age, as we had the fiscal cliff thing coming up at the new year, the, the biggest word I read, uncertainty. Everybody is saying it. I, I wrote an, I, I didn't write an article. I printed an article that says uncertainty is the only safe prediction. I mean, the only thing they're certain about is everything's uncertain. The financial world is preoccupied by how little it knows. This article starts. This is the, this, and it was written back in August. This is the summer of uncertainty. Chief executives, money managers, analysts, and central bankers are preoccupied by how little they know. All the conventional wisdom the world, uh, that they have, the world says the future is especially unknowable right now financially speaking, economically speaking. If you have lousy returns, blame uncertainty. The uncertainty consensus is flattering. It implies our age is uniquely on edge. There's never been a more unpredictable set of tea leaves than right now the chief executive officer for Caterpillar, the uh, earth-moving, machine-making company, said. And some others acknowledged an unusually high level of uncertainty had blurred their own outlooks. Now, that's the world. Let me give you a glimpse into heaven. You can invest right now in a place where nothing can touch your investment, and that's in heaven. You can store up treasures in heaven right now, and you can know that when you get there, they'll be there waiting for you. There's no recession in heaven. Amen? There's no recession in heaven. There's no uncertainty in heaven. All of that exists right now. So the, the question is, what are you trusting in? I mean, are, are, is your trust in the fact that you've got some savings? Because I know people that had it, and they don't anymore. And if, that, if that's what you're living for, and if that's what you're searching for, and if that's what your life is focused on, then what's your, all your trust is in something that's uncertain. And what does that lead to? Does that lead to a firm life? Does that lead to a firm? I want to rest my hope fully on the grace of God. And I want to place my trust fully. My soul is anchored in him. Not in, not in wealth or money and all of those things. So command those. He doesn't say, listen, this is interesting. He doesn't say command those who are rich in this present age. Well, he says don't be haughty and don't trust in those uncertain riches, but trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. I needed that. I, I, like, I was just at a point in my life where I needed that. 
I need to be reminded that God is not like the Grinch. That God is, is not like this uh, grumpy God who wants us to always be miserable. That if you've got some stuff, praise the Lord and enjoy it. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that, that was freeing to me. Because I get to feel guilty about stuff. Like if I buy something, sometimes I feel guilty about that. Because I got this, you know, guilt thing that I deal with. And so when I read that, I was like, man, that's wonderful. That, that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. If you've if you got some nice stuff, you've got a boat, you've got whatever you've got, then praise the Lord and enjoy it. The best way to enjoy it, and the best way to enjoy it is to share it. Let other people enjoy it with you. No fun when you're just kind of... And that's what Paul goes on to say. Let them uh, do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. This is the deal, folks. This is where it's at. And and what I was going to say before, he says, command those who are rich in this present age, he says, let them do good, that they be rich in good works. That's his exhortation. He doesn't say, and this is interesting to me, he doesn't say command them to tithe. If, he was, if, if Paul was promoting tithing as a New Testament principle, then this would have been a great place to do it. Command those that are rich to tithe. I mean, I'd love to say that this morning. Tithe. Ten, tithe just means a tenth. Whatever you bring in, just give a tenth right away. I, I don't think that's a bad principle. I don't think it's a New Testament principle. That's why I had you mark 2 Corinthians. Let's go there. Because it certainly would have been great for... Paul could have easily said, do this. That keeps it simple. But he doesn't. He says, command them that they be rich in good works. Are you rich in good works? Are you using your money to do good things? This is, a, this is the principle that I live by, or try to. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 simple but i say this i say he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully so let each one give as he purposes in his heart paul's consistent not grudgingly or of necessity for god loves a cheerful giver say that again god loves a cheerful giver doesn't he he doesn't want you to come in and Get your checkbook out and write this stinking check. I really could use this. I got some things I want to do. Check, put it in a fine, you know, whatever. I'm doing what I got to do. That's not what God is looking for. If, if that's the attitude you come and you, you give with, then keep it. Keep it. God doesn't need it. God's not poor. He doesn't need your money. You need to give. God does more with nothing than, you, than he could do with all of your account all to get put together. He can do, Mother Teresa said, we the un- uh, unknowing, ah, let me see if I get this right. We, the unknowing, uh, have been doing, oh man, see, I am on the spot. Have been doing so much for so long with so little that we're now qualified to do anything with nothing. There we go. Just takes a minute to get revved up. We've been doing so much for so long with so little that we're now qualified to do anything with nothing. Ministry doesn't take money. There's a lot you can do that's free. A smile is free. A hug is free. Prayer is free. Bible reading is free. All of that stuff is free. We'll give you a free Bible if you don't have one. Money's a great tool for ministry. Believe me, money's a great tool for ministry. But 
Paul says back in 2 Corinthians 9, be a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Here's the principle. If you sow sparingly, then you're going to reap sparingly. Sowing is planting. Reaping is harvesting. So here's the way it works. You've got a bag of seed and everybody's bag is a different size. Depending on, you know, that, that's your bag is your wealth. It's your resources. And some of us have just a little bag, like the widow who had just two mites. And some of us have a great big bag. We've got, you know, retirement plans and 401ks and all this stuff. And we've got money sitting in the bank. We have millions. That's our bag. The question is, now, now if, you, if, you try, if you get nervous about your, you can start to wrap your arms around your seed. It's my seed. I've got to hold on to my seed. And, and you'll always have your seed. But will you ever have any fruit? No, you won't, you won't enjoy a tomato unless you put a seed in the ground and plant it. Now, some of you go, okay, well, all right, I understand that. I, I'm, I'm kind of nervous about it because I don't know if it's going to grow. But, but I'll, I'll plant one, pop it in the ground, and then you, you watch it, you water it. And, and maybe if, it's, if it grows, you get some tomatoes and, and you enjoy that. But then you see a guy who's got a bag, and he's just putting handfuls. He's planting, he's got a feel acres of seed he's planted. And what's he get? Yeah, he might have a few plants that don't come up. But what's he get if he plants acres of seed? Acres and acres of tomatoes or whatever else is you planted. And that's the principle. It's not tithing. The question is, how much fruit do you want to see? How much fruit do you want to see? If you want to see a lot of fruit in your life, if you want to see a lot of provision so you can keep helping others, then plant a lot of seed. Do a lot of good. Use your money to bless a lot of people. Share your stuff. One of my favorite verses. Back in, oh, I think I unmarked, oh, there it is, Proverbs. This is what, another life verse for me when it comes to money. There is one who scatters yet in, and yet increases more. The one who's scattering is the one who's going to be increasing. And there's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich. And he who waters will also be watered himself. You don't have, the fear is if I give it away, I'm going to have nothing for myself. And that's where faith comes in. You watch, Christian, what happens when you make a decision in your life to push yourself financially in giving, to live as simply as you can so you can give as generously as you can. I mean, there's times where I have been scared, but I have, I can't tell you the blessings this little unexpected thing. You can't do it expecting, well, I'll do this, but I better get something back, God. I'll write that, I'll help that person, but I better get it back. That's the wrong attitude, don't do that. You give because it's good for your soul. And it's good for loving other people. You can, if you've got something to share it, you know, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. And I have found that as I've watered, as we've helped others in, in their lives, I've always been watered myself. Other people have blessed me. It's just the way it works. It's a godly principle. If you sow sparingly, if you just do a little bit here and there, then all you're ever going to get back is a little bit from others. But if you are generous and abundant in your giving, you do as much as you can. Listen to the testimony of these folks, and we're almost through. This is a book called The God Who Hung on the Cross by uh, Dois Rosser and Ellen Vaughn. This guy was a wealthy a uh, wealthy man from Virginia Beach, actually, and I think car dealerships was how he came into his wealth. Uh, time came, he was getting older, and, and he was, 
gotten involved with planting churches or, or building church buildings around the world, uh, thousands of them. And again, he had some means and, and had been doing this and was convicted that uh, all this money, he, you know, his kids didn't know the kind of inheritance they had. I mean, he had a lot of wealth, and that wealth would have been passed on to his children. I think he had four kids or so. Uh, anyway, but he decides that God is calling him to use that inheritance to build churches around the world. And so he calls a family meeting with his kids. And he's a little nervous about what they're going to say. So he keeps beating around the bush. They have this family meeting and he just won't come out with it. He's nervous about saying it. But he says, I was confident about God's leading that he was guiding Shirley and me toward a radical decision. But now looking at my daughter's upturned faces, I quailed. I didn't know of any way to soften what they might consider to be a blow. Then Cindy came to my rescue. What is it, dad? She asked gently. Go ahead. What's on your mind? I took a deep breath. What I'm trying to say is how would you feel if your mother and I took our entire estate and put it into building churches and broadcasting uh, this Christian radio around the world rather than willing it to you as your inheritance? The words were out. I felt miserable. Pam, Cindy, and Janice all looked at me. Uh, That's their daughters. Their lovely faces perplexed. Oh, no, I thought they feel left out, abandoned. But then I realized the the real reason for their confusion I'm not sure which one spoke the actual words. I only recall that they all nodded in agreement. Oh, Dad, they said, smiling. Is that all? We never thought of it as our inheritance. Tell us more. So he shared the plan and what God had been doing as they've been building church buildings. And then this is one last part I'm going to read to you. Each daughter responded in keeping with her particular personality. Cindy, the pastor theologian, said, Maybe it's countercultural not to expect the wealth of parents to be passed on, but I've always believed that financial blessings are meant to become blessings to others particularly those in special need. She went on warming to the subject. My true inheritance, the one I've valued as an exquisite gift, has been the model of your love for Christ and how you've lived that love in a way that is concrete and compassionate and in line with the Great Commission. That's my real inheritance. That's what I want to pass on to my own children. That may not be what God's calling you to do, to give up you know, whatever you have saved. And, you know, that was them. That's their story. God's writing yours. God's writing your story. So back as we finish up in 1 Timothy, go back with me there. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. Let us do good. That they be rich in good works. That's the principle. Ready to give. Willing to share storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, verse 20 says, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. I mean, Timothy, stay away from fruitless discussions and arguments about all that stuff. Keep yourself focused on what's important because by professing this so-called knowledge, uh, people have gone astray, he says. Some uh, have, have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Amen. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul, right? So as Phil comes up and we uh, close out, one final just reminder final article. How much money do you really need to be happy? Uh, Statistics show that once you have a contentment, any extra money 
doesn't bring happiness. And the way to truly, statistically speaking, this is, the, this is just confirming the Bible, the way to really be happy in your life is to give. That's what makes people happy, by being generous. The world gets it wrong, don't they? The world tells us if we just had more, we'd be happy. But the reality is, that's not true. The reality is, just as God said, the one who waters will be watered himself. Amen? As Phil closes, if there's anybody that has not laid hold on eternal life, doesn't know how to do that, then please just come up after the church service and say, you know what? I've got some things in this world, but I don't know if I have eternal life. And I don't know on the day of of my departure from this world, uh, I'm not sure all that stuff I have is really going to matter. I want to know that I know that I'm saved. Come up afterwards and we can talk about it. Amen? Amen.